Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. And hello, listeners. This is the News Items Podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, bringing you news items that we think are interesting, important, or both. It's Tuesday, April 20th. We'll start with two important science and tech headlines, and then we'll get into the news items. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, let's start with cyber warfare. We've got two items here. Japanese authorities are pretty sure the Chinese military hacked into approximately 200 Japanese companies and organizations. And then there's a great story in The New Yorker, which I think was just out today, about North Korea's lucrative army of hackers that we should definitely discuss. What, uh, what item are you looking at? All right, we got to talk about the speech that Attorney General Merrick Garland gave yesterday, which was the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Then let's talk about how governments are finally starting to try to rein in big tech. Okay, after the news items, we'll take a short break and then hear Rebecca's fascinating interview with Scott Cutler, the CEO of StockX. This is a company that treats sneakers like their securities. It's incredible. Okay, John, let's get into our science and tech headlines. First, researchers at Ohio State University have created software that allows for the rapid design and simulation of complex nanodevices. These are tiny robots, essentially. One of them is one thousandth the width of a human hair. And in these researchers' designs, the robots connect and mobilize biological material, strands of DNA, for all kinds of purposes. In the future, nanodevices could sail through our bloodstreams, detecting disease and even administering treatments. The researchers unveiled the software known as Magic DNA in the journal Nature Materials on Monday. A co-author told Science Daily that he imagines such nanotechnology will move from academic to commercial use in the next five to ten years. I'm hoping that's in time uh, for not too much plaque has built up in my brain. (laughs) The little scrub brushes can go out and clean things out. Yeah. There's a household product that that has these little sort of Pac-Men scrubbers. That's pretty much the idea here. It's just at a uh, size that is not detectable to the human eye. All right. That's a promising development. It's exciting. Next, China will build a $3 billion supercomputing center by the end of the year, according to state media. Built within a spaceport on the southern island Henan, its purpose will be to analyze data specifically collected from satellites. Earlier this month, the government also announced plans for a commercial space base on the island. Surprised? Not surprised. You know, (laughs) China has made it clear that they want to not own, obviously, but have a significant footprint in space. In order to do that, uh, you need supercomputing capability on on the planet Earth. The other thing is there's so much space junk you know, rotating around the world that you need that supercomputing capability to track uh, space junk yeah. to keep it from colliding with all of the satellites that are proposed and all of the various missions that will follow in the years ahead. Let's move on to the news items. China's military was likely behind a series of hacks involving around 200 Japanese companies and government organizations. That's according to Japan's authorities and its public broadcaster. Separately, The New Yorker has reported on North Korea's own military hackers who rake in billions through run-of-the-mill criminal schemes. To bring it full circle, John, a Justice Department attorney suspects that China actually assists with some of its Korean neighbors' hacking. John, where is all this state-led cyber warfare leading? I think most of it actually has to do with IP, Mm -hmm. intellectual property. I think if you're China, 
you know, and Toyota announces that they are going to produce, you know, 15 separate vehicles that are electric powered instead of gas powered, you'd probably like to have a look into <laughs> into mm-hmm. that IP. And uh, hacking is the only way that, that they can do that. So I think intellectual property, particularly in the scientific and technological realm, is the most attractive target, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. What's unusual about North Korea is that they actually do it as a source of revenue. That's right. right. It's, so, said in, it's, it's said in that New, in that New Yorker piece, North Korea is the only country in the world whose government is known to conduct hacking for monetary gains. So that's like a GDP revenue line item. Right. As that Justice Department source told the New Yorker, North Korea has become a, quote, criminal syndicate with a flag. Like how much of North Korea's GDP derives from hacking? Well, uh, $2 billion, according to the UN, back in 2019... And their financial hacking has picked up since then. So it's a major source of revenue, and particularly because their economy is just dead as a doornail. Mm -hmm. Uh, China has only recently come to a kind of mini rescue. Uh, They need money from wherever they can get it. And so they employ an army Mm -hmm. of hackers to literally go steal money from banks and even ATM machines. I mean, it's just astonishing. And it does raise, you know, it does raise the question of, I mean, obviously the National Security Agency here in the United States is not going to tell us what they're doing Mm -hmm. and how successful they've been defensively. Yeah. But it appears uh, that the answer to the latter question is not very. Mm -hmm. The Russians uh, obviously have been hacking away the solar winds hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese have been, you know, banging on academic institutions and tech companies and scientific research centers, uh, seemingly at will. Mm-hmm. And I have no sense from reading all this stuff that you know the U.S. is on top of it. The only yeah. thing that I do have a sense of is that the Microsoft people and the Google people and the Facebook people and the private firms that do this kind of work—they're pretty good at detecting hacks. But it doesn't seem to me that we are on firm footing defending against hacks. That's the name of the game. Defense. On we go. On we go. So Monday was the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people. Attorney General Merrick Garland led the investigation into the attack as a young lawyer at the Justice Department, and on Monday, he visited the memorial to mark the occasion and recount his experiences. In his remarks, he connected that attack to the domestic terror threats we're still facing today. Although many years have passed, the terror perpetrated by people like Timothy McVeigh is still with us. Just last month, the FBI warned of the ongoing and heightened threat posed by domestic violent extremists. John, what part of A.G. Garland's remarks spoke to you? Well, without aging myself too much, I I wrote a lot when I was writing for the Boston Globe about the Oklahoma City bombing, which was at the time a kind of 9-11-like event. It was the single largest domestic terrorism event, I think, in the country's history. Mm -hmm. And amongst people who are knowledgeable about this sort of thing. The Garland investigation and prosecution was all but flawless. It was Mm -hmm. 
remarkably fastidious. It was an exhaustive in every sense of the word. And it led to the death sentence for Mr. McVeigh and a life imprisonment for his accomplice. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to uh, January 6th, and we had the what are called riots yep. on Capitol Hill. A lot of people looked at those, quote, riots, end quote, as a serious attempt to probe the defenses of the federal government in hopes of some action disrupting it in Mm -hmm. significant ways. And President Biden announces that he is appointing Merrick Garland Mm -hmm. to be the Attorney General of the United States. You know, most people thought, well, he's a qualified guy, he got the job. But I think Biden appointed Merrick Garland Attorney General and let it be known that he would have uh, all the resources he needs to make sure that January 6th never happened again. Mm-hmm. And his appearance yesterday at Oklahoma City was yet another signal to the extreme right and the militias in the United States that if they think that he's going away or if you think he'll be distracted by other things, think again. He went to Oklahoma City. He said, Oklahoma City will always be in my heart. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is, I'm coming for you next. As I recall it, as a you know young person, it was the first time I had heard the introduction of the phrase domestic terrorist. You know, if you come from certain parts of the country, let's say, it's not unusual to hear people who are critical of the government or people who have a fondness for guns or people who have certain militant leanings. But the Oklahoma City bombing cast those sentiments and those actions leading from those sentiments into entirely different space, which was the space of domestic terrorism. Yeah. No turning back after that point. The test, obviously, will be, you know, what happens with the militias and the extremist groups this time around in the wake of January 6th. Um, Mm -hmm. What they learned from January 6th is that the capital of all things and Washington, D.C. generally is a soft target. Mm -hmm. And if you extrapolate from what happened on January 6th, you can see a large enough mob could bring down the White House. So that will certainly change the force structure around both the White House and Congress. But the big thing it does is that it enables the Biden administration to take vast sums of money and give it to the FBI and the Justice Department and say, go get these people and make sure they never come back. Amen to that. Okay, so let's move on to our last news item of the day, John. We'll talk about big tech. According to a headline in The New York Times this morning, a global tipping point for reigning in tech has arrived. Legislators around the world in the U.S., the EU, Russia, and China are trying to claw back power from tech companies through antitrust measures, content moderation, the defense of privacy, and more. John, do you think governments will succeed in regulating big tech, or are they too powerful and too popular to rein in? You know, I think they could affect some change and put some fences around big tech. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain that they know how to. And I don't think that they truly understand the balance of power here. Yeah. So according to the Times reporting, the 10 largest global tech firms have a combined market capitalization of $10 trillion. If this were a country, it would be the world's third largest entity. The third largest country would be the 10 largest tech firms. Yeah. What do you think of that, John? No, it's huge, right? Uh And 
There are a couple of things that the government wants. One, they're concerned about the issues that they're concerned about, privacy yeah. and concentration of power and you know yeah. all of that stuff. <laughs> they also want to tax it big time. And so you know, there's got to be a trade there that they yeah. can make, which is we'll tax you less if you agree to do Y. But in Europe especially, it yeah. looks like a shakedown. <laughs> and I, I'm not. I'm not know, sure that shakedown. I'm not sure that that's going to. Uh, I don't know how that would work out. Much of of Europe's assertive tendencies toward big tech have come thanks to one of my favorite Danish politicians, Margrethe Vestager, who is the executive vice president in charge of digital policy for the European Union. She has come out swinging against big tech on multiple occasions. Like her sort of catchphrase is that if it's illegal offline, it's illegal online. I mean, that shouldn't be such a controversial proposition, right? I mean, the idea is to crack down on the use of technology for malign ends, shall we say. She is the one, right? She's the leader of the effort to <laughs> rein in the power of big tech and collect significant revenue in the process. It's not like some wild or crazy idea. I mean, mm-hmm. reining in the power of big tech is a good idea. You just you have to be very careful because they have so much intellectual property power that you don't want to lose them. All right. So, John, after the break, we have an interview, my interview with Scott Cutler, the CEO of StockX. Do you know StockX? I know all about it. You do? (laughs) I'm kidding. So unlike platforms like eBay or, I don't know, TradeZ or The Real Real or something like that, StockX is only for new, unused items. So you would not sell your used sneakers on StockX. But what it is great for is uh, sort of limited edition, limited runs, dead stock, like vintage dead stock that has sort of built-in scarcity, tremendous cultural cachet, all of that data and that I wouldn't call it manufactured scarcity. I think I'd call it inherent scarcity is sort of built into the StockX marketplace. I'm really interested to hear that. I love the idea of trading President Clinton's golf balls from 1996 (laughs) or whatever. New and unused, yes. But first, we'll go to a break. So our guest today is the CEO of the stock market of things, StockX, the wildly successful fintech startup that has made a tradable market in consumer goods like athletic shoes. But I know him from back in the day at the stock market of stocks, the New York Stock Exchange, where he led U.S. listings and headed up the NYSE's office on Sand Hill Road in beautiful Palo Alto. Since then, he's had executive roles at eBay and StubHub and has combined his wisdom and expertise from all of the above to lead StockX, which just nabbed a Series E venture round valuing the company at $3.8 billion, a tricorn, fast approaching quadcorn status. Scott Cutler, thanks for speaking today. I've never heard the expression a tricorn. Sounds <laughs> odd, but uh, we'll go, we'll go with it. But Rebecca, it's great. Right. it's great to be on today. Thank you. This is, uh, this is exciting. <laughs> Excellent. So let's sort of maybe break it down for our listeners. Scott, very simply, what is StockX in 30 seconds or less? Our vision is to be the leading e-commerce platform for consumers of current culture. Amen to that. 
Business model, 30 seconds or less. The business model of StockX is once a transaction has been matched or completed on the platform, the buyer pays a shipping charge associated with it, as well as a buyer fee. And the seller pays it essentially a take rate, uh, as well as payment processing. And those four components make up the revenue of StockX. How is StockX like a stock exchange or a stock trading platform, or maybe since it's things, I was thinking maybe it's more like a commodity trading platform since people do take delivery of items as a result of their trades. Yeah. So similar to a stock exchange, uh, you're able to come to the site and you're able to see in a product-based experience, real-time data that powers buyers and sellers to transact. So that would be last sale transaction history, as well as bid and ask. And similar to the exchange, the platform provides that opportunity to match a buyer and a seller at the highest bid and the lowest ask. And why that's so innovative in the consumer commerce place is that most markets are one of one transactions. You're selling one thing to one buyer. There hasn't been another consumer marketplace that has consolidated all of those different listings into a product view. It would be very similar to say, you know, when a share of Nike trades on the exchange, you don't know who the buyer or the seller is, but you know what a share of Nike represents. Here, in the case, I know uh, one of the folks on your team loves Jordan 7s. When that Jordan 7 is trading on our platform, it's just one singular place. And then the buyers and sellers are interacting against it. So it's been a really dynamic product experience that this generation of consumers really loves. So let's talk about StockX as a platform for alternative asset access, let's let's say. How have sneakers or you know, sneakers and other consumer goods fared as a durable store of value? I, I think what's interesting in the conversation in the last couple of months, the idea that these items, collectible items, sneakers are an asset class is something that's taking off with this next generation. So mm-hmm. it certainly is an mm-hmm. asset class. If you look at the performance of the asset class, again, if you looked at Jordans or Dunks or very specific popular styles or releases, they have actually traded quite well. Last year, I think mm-hmm. we, we highlighted in a, what we call a big facts report with the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary, you saw the demand mm-hmm. for pretty much all of Jordan, particularly the OGs, that went up significantly with the release of that documentary. And so you could see that if you were an investor in that asset class, and typically that would mean you had bought those sneakers, held them in a, in their original condition, you would have made mm-hmm. money over time. And I think actually, when I look at my own portfolio on StockX, it's outperformed uh, the S&P actually quite well. But I think it's also mm-hmm. just representative of a lot of people that trade on our platform are actually making an investment decision, an economic decision, Uh not just consumption. Uh So I'm very interested in the type of tradable market data that your platform generates. I mean, obviously, you can see sort of the bid and the ask in terms of what the current market for shoes is. But what, for example, drives volatility in a pair of shoes? Well, volatility is really driven by the market. The market Mm -hmm. is always moving in Many of our highly liquid traded sneakers or collectibles, we can have sometimes thousands of trades in a day. And so since the market is setting that price, there is some volatility. But I guess the transparency that we provide because we show the market data and the trading history does create a flywheel Mm -hmm. opportunity for both buyers and sellers. So for example, 
a buyer has the opportunity to come and see exactly what the last trade was for. And then they can see every single ask that a seller is willing to sell that price for. And a majority of the time, they just execute against that ask that exists in the book. Similarly, on the other side, a seller on the platform can see all of the different price points at which a buyer is willing to pay that product and could either ask for a higher price or could execute or sweep that book if they wanted to. And that visibility on both sides of the market has created a network effect for trading, which Mm -hmm. creates a lot of velocity for the platform. Sure. So you mentioned that your portfolio on StockX has outperformed the S&P. Is there typically a positive correlation between StockX product valuations and stocks? I mean, I know, I think luxury retail is typically correlated to stocks pretty closely. I don't think there's there's any correlation there. It's more correlated to consumer trend, consumer taste. So in the example of something that's worn by an influencer or a particular style that might be promoted, what you do see Mm -hmm. is when those events happen, you'll see price appreciation. And also, as is the case with the stock market or any other live marketplace, real life events have ramifications on what people choose to buy and sell. So I'd say it's an episodic market. For example, the NBA championships, what we saw Mm -hmm. in NBA All-Star, that a lot of brands release product around those events. And so those events become instances where the market becomes more active. We've also had uh, tragic events. Kobe's passing last year also resulted in a surge of demand for Kobe-related products at that time. As we look at current culture, everything that could be represented in current culture is, is probably represented and captured in that moment on StockX. When Kendall Jenner wears an SB Dunk, a Nike, what you saw is all of the SB Dunks that were trading on the platform increased in value, represented by just more demand. So as I understand it, there's, you know, these kind of these other collectible segments like comic books, um, like movie correlated collectibles have remained robust throughout COVID, despite the fact that, you know, there were no superhero movies or movies being produced during the pandemic and live sporting events were not going on during the pandemic. But have you observed any changes in consumer, obviously not consumer demand, but consumer behavior that you can share as a result of COVID? So We've been strong and stable and open throughout this last year, and that's you know required a significant amount of investment in authentication centers and people and team to be able to operate. But we have seen a massive acceleration in the growth. I think COVID leads to a couple of things. You know, one, the e-commerce market overall, digital markets have, have nearly doubled. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've seen growth in users and buyers from around the world, particularly as they were not able to access product in retail locations. And another big trend is that we've seen just again, we talked about earlier, this idea that this is an asset class unlocking economic Mm -hmm. opportunity. Those have all resulted in consumer behavior and demand that has really accelerated over the course of the last year. And so even though we've been in a pandemic, sneaker prices, the assets of sneakers, the asset collectibles have all risen dramatically in value over the course of the last year. So what's the big seller right now? I'm really excited for a couple new uh, releases and collaboration with Travis Scott and mm-hmm. Nike. A couple of years Excellent. ago, that was a top seller. My most recent purchase is once floating behind me, the Supreme Dunk that was very popular. And these uh, oh, cause wow. space figurines. 
Again, just kind of an example mm-hmm. of products that are, you know, released out into the market and StockX becomes a place to access them. So I'm a big okay. buyer on our platform and seller. Absolutely. Market of things, StockX. Scott Culler, thank you so much. It was great catching up. Thanks so much, Rebecca. That's a fascinating interview. Yeah. I have a hard time thinking of shoes as an asset, but clearly they are. They've got data of a very specific and and it sounds kind of quirky, but it's very relatable type. This is a company to watch. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to News Items, the podcast, but you should also get John's newsletter on Substack. Just Google the words Substack News Items and it'll come right up. And we also would urge you to subscribe to uh, Rebecca's terrific website, which is investableuniverse.com. She covers the global market of things, uh, which I love the phrase. Uh, it's free, I guess, right? It's free. For now. For now. <laughs> For now. For now. So go there quickly before a huge fee is installed. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's value on StockX is quickly, quickly climbing. <laughs> Yeah. We're going to talk about how news items came to be tomorrow because Rebecca is off. Yep. And so I'm going to tell the story of how it got from there to here. The origin story. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we'll have an interview with Sally Jenkins, the legendary sports columnist. All right. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news.